The title of our study tonight is Them That Love Him. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the reason why I want to go over this passage is because I think it's important to recognize the verses that surround that verse. I don't know how many of you know of the song, I Can Only Imagine. It's a very, very popular song. Uh, beautifully written. And it asks the question or ponders the idea of what will it be like when we get to heaven. And a lot of people I've heard will use 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse 9. If you're there, you can read that with me here. It says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And then verse 10 says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And a lot of people have taken that Mercy Me song and they said, well, I can't imagine what heaven will be like because I have the Holy Spirit and he reveals all things to me. But I think context is very important. I don't think what the Spirit is revealing here is the nature or the things in heaven. What is being revealed here is the things of God, specifically the plan of salvation, and then everything that comes along with that, which yields to Christian growth, and it is to those that love him. Now, this is something that we're going to dive into the study right now. A lot of times, you'll hear in this seeker-friendly church culture that loving the Lord is equal to eternal life. You're not going to hear that exactly, but it's going to be the message that's said. You know, God loves us, so he wants to enter into a relationship with us. And what is said is that requires commitment, that requires turning. You know, do you really love him? Well, then do X, Y, and Z. And that's putting the cart before the horse. I wrote the statement down. I wanted to make sure I, I said it as it is supposed to be said. The word in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 6, there's a verse, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, there's a phrase here. Look at it with me for a moment. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. If you have a Schofield Bible, there's a little letter H at the top of the word perfect, and there's a marginal note there that says I-E, or in other words, full grown. Now, if you know anything about what Paul is going to say in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, you know that the the uh, Christians in Corinth were not mature. They were carnal. As a matter of fact, they could not take in the stronger meat of the word because they were babies in Christ. And I talked about this a little bit on Sunday morning. But in a sense, they are mature because they have accepted the message of the cross. And that's really what's at the focus here of the passage because there is the worldly wisdom that is compared to the wisdom of God, and the only difference between these two is the acceptance of God's stated record of fact. That word record is very important, and I believe that's why 1 John speaks so clearly that this is the record that those who believe on the Son have a life, and this life is in His Son. So it's important to recognize if there's going to be any kind of acceptance and transition from accepting worldly wisdom to accepting God's wisdom, it has to hinge on the fact that a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ. In that sense, the baby believers in Corinth were grown. Do you understand the difference? Because the difference is somebody who 
has not put their trust in Christ, they're going to go to naught, as it says in the rest of the passage here. But those who have put their trust in Christ, these are the ones that the letter is written to. You are mature in the sense you have accepted God's wisdom. There's more for you to do, but you're at least not stuck in that worldly wisdom. Take a look at this passage for a moment here, and then I'll read this, this quote. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the, of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You should take note of that passage. I'm going to continue on, but we're going to come back to that in just a second, that last part. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared. Now there's that statement there, for them that love him. People will conclude incorrectly that loving God is how a person enters into eternal life. And that's not the statement here. The statement here is for those who have already accepted God's wisdom and grow into it, there is more to be revealed because they are walking in the new nature which is edified by the Holy Spirit, which will yield growth. It will bear fruit because they're connected to the vine. The problem with the believers in Corinth were they believed on Jesus Christ, but they did not love God as they ought to. Now, you would say, is it possible? Or you may hear someone say, is it possible for someone to believe on Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died on the cross of Calvary, shed his blood, was buried and rose again three days later for the purpose of paying for their sin and not love God? The answer is yes. It is possible. And you may have that same person say, I believe on Jesus Christ, and I love God, but they only say it. They don't show it. That's going to be the difference between what is a profession of love and what is actually a demonstration of love. For a moment, would you look in 1 John chapter 2, uh, two with me? John is writing here, probably after AD 90, Jerusalem has fallen. Paul and most of the, I would say all of the apostles, the original apostles, have passed away, save John himself. And he makes this statement here in verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2, excuse me, verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is, now look at this phrase, the love of God perfected. That word perfected there, even if you were to look over in the, the reference note, draws you back to this idea of fully grown, matured. Hereby know we that we are in Him. Now this is not salvifically in Him, but that we're walking in fellowship with Him if we do what He says to do. And that's how you show your love for God. It's not simply an emotional response. It is actual action. Instruction received from the Word 
and then you as the child of God applying it, that's faithful obedience. That's what yields fruit. That's love. Read that again. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected or matured. So now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Having that in mind, understanding verse 9 is a is uh, not the first time that that's in the Bible. I believe it's over in the book of Isaiah where this phrase is being uh, taken. The change here is them that love him, it was different. I believe it says them that wait on him in the Old Testament. But the idea here is that those who believe the record of God, which is in his son Jesus, and faithfully obey him, they're going to get knowledge, not outside of the Bible, but they're going to be able to take that knowledge and apply it, and they'll grow. Paul is one of those people. He took the knowledge that he had received. He applied it to his life. He was faithful and obedient. He left all that he had before, and he went on and served the Lord. And God used him for the purpose that he was called to in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to put you before kings and governments, and you're going to, I'm going to show how much suffering you have to go through for my name's sake. And Paul did that. The problem in Corinth was they were not doing that, but they had the ability to do it because they believed. Now look at what it says in verse 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. Paul's approach is not logic. He's not going into Corinth and thinking, how do I entice them with man's wisdom to hear God's wisdom? He goes right out with the truth. And what's the truth? Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins. He is God in the flesh. You believe on Him, you receive eternal life. He doesn't bait and switch. It's a very popular theory in today's Christian apologetics. If you can make yourself seem like somebody worth listening to, then people will listen to you. But that shouldn't be the approach, uh, excuse me, the approach for the Christian. The approach should be if you want people to hear the wisdom of God, speak the wisdom of God. And the Holy Spirit's drawing all men. We'll get to that in a moment. But as the Holy Spirit is drawing all men because the Son of Man was lifted up, people will have a choice to respond. And this is where the line between sound doctrine and false doctrine begins to be blurred because there's this idea that, well, people have, I have to have credentials in order for people to hear me. Your credentials are the Word of God. There is power in this book taught correctly. The Holy Spirit is working through it to bring people to a point of, what am I going to do about this man, Jesus? Look what it says. Not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world, that come to naught. Them that are perfect, those uh, who have come to believe the message of the cross, which is hidden for those that pursue worldly wisdom, and they add to their faith, which is their maturity. Not their justification, but their maturity. The princes of this world is an example of leaders of the worldly wisdom, which informs secular opinion. And you see this a lot. I think it's a very good example in conservative media. A lot of conservative principles are based on biblical principles, but the conservative mouthpieces don't recognize that. They tell you this is something unique to American culture. It's something unique to the Constitution, all of those things. But they deny the power of God. 
All of these things that were formed in this country, and when you go back to it, regardless of the character of the men in which formed them, they built their beliefs of how a government should be run and the freedom of the individual based off of rights that were given first by God. We've moved away from that because there's this idea of God is the mystical, unknown, he's kind of here, he's kind of there, can't really be defined. And conservatism says, hey, I'm the right way because I'm rooted in sense. But they don't realize they're rooted in what the scripture says, but they deny that. And I'm seeing this more and more, especially with more and more people on YouTube specifically converting from a very secular lifestyle over to Christianity seemingly overnight. I mean, some of these guys, they're major, major streamers. They like, you know, like they'll stream for six or seven, eight hours a day, and they'll just react to content, play video games and stuff. And they're very vulgar, they're very worldly, and then all of a sudden they stop streaming for like two weeks, and they come back, and it talks about how they're a Christian now. They don't explain what that is, but they start showing fruit of somebody who understands biblical things, but nothing is really ever said of Jesus. And I think that's on purpose, because the devil doesn't want people to know where the power of the gospel is. But people are now starting to say, well, I'm just Christian because I want to do good now. And that's what a Christian is in many people's minds. But that's still pursuing in worldly wisdom. We talked about it before. A lost man can say and do all the things that a saved man does and still be lost because he hasn't believed the record that God set of his son. Look what it says in verse 7. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. The reason why Paul characterized the wisdom of God as a mystery is because the wisdom of the world cannot find the wisdom of God in and of itself. I'm going to give you this illustration and you'll see this explained later in the passage. Let's say you're looking for a file on a computer, okay? You sit down at the computer and you search for this file. You do it twice and each way is a different way. The first search, you go into the hard drive where everything is, the C drive, right? It's got the operating system there. It has the user folder. It has thousands of folders with tens of thousands of documents within each folder. You sit down and you type into the search bar the name of the file and you will find the file because of the nature of the search. You have all of that available to you. You look up that file, boom, the file is presented to you. You can access it. The second time you search it, you're limited to one folder on the hard drive that doesn't have that file in it. It has a bunch of files, but it doesn't have the file you're looking for. So you open up a search bar in that file, <coughs> excuse me, in that folder, you type in the name of the file, and the file's not found. You go to another folder where the file is not there, but you search for it and you can't find it. This is the example of man's wisdom. The whole computer... All of the file folders and all of that represents God's superior knowledge, his wisdom, the application of that knowledge, and how the plan of salvation is revealed in that database. But then the man's search is limited. He, only, he can only look in one folder, maybe 10 folders, maybe 10,000 folders, but he won't find the plan of salvation in the wisdom of himself. Because what is man's wisdom? Man's wisdom is to make sure that he has the preservation to consume upon his desires. Man seeks to elevate himself above all else. 
whatever needs to be done for him to preserve his right to do what he wants to do as he sees fit, he'll do it. And that does not include finding the plan of salvation on his own. That's why Jesus came and did what he did. That doesn't mean that man now is unable to respond to God's wisdom. But in order for man to understand it, God had to reveal it. And he did. He did reveal it. And that's the important thing of focus here. Let me read you this for a moment. The wisdom of God is a mystery because the world would not find it without God revealing it first. Man's natural desire is himself and his preservation of consuming on his desires. Worldly wisdom can only elevate man and blind him from God's plan of salvation. If worldly wisdom could lead a person to God's plan of salvation, then it would have saved Jesus from the cross. Look at what it says in verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus went to the cross unhindered because man did not understand God's plan. Now that the plan has been revealed through this process of time, man can make a response. And all people before the event of Jesus, they put their trust in God that there would be a Redeemer for them. And it's important to recognize and understand that in all of this, there is more for the person who is obedient to access because of this Spirit that is within them, that Holy Spirit. Then we see verse 9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Excuse me a moment. Then it goes on to say, (coughs) excuse me, God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. So the only way that we can understand the knowledge that is available to us to be applied to our lives is by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You put your trust in Jesus, you become sealed with the Holy Spirit, which now has access to the whole computer. You're not just limited to a few file folders looking for something that's not there. You have access to it all through the Word, the leading, guiding, and directing of the Holy Spirit, which works in concert to push and promote Jesus Christ. You you can see that in, in the book of John. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at that for just a moment. Hold your spot here and go to John chapter 12 and verse 27. <coughs> John 12, verse 27. Jesus is speaking here. He's asked a question. He's, he's giving an answer. I want to focus on one one part of this here. Now is my my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is very important to recognize. You have Jesus now, this is not the first time that he's being recognized by God to be the Son. But there are people who stood by, heard it, and that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. 
there's a process of this knowledge being revealed, God the initiator, going through it. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, Jesus speaking of himself, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The first part, the if I be lifted up, is his physical being lifted up physically on the cross and put into that um, position. As a result of his crucifixion, it will draw all men to focus on that. And that's the call of the gospel. Will you believe on Jesus Christ who died on the cross? This is why I reject this crossless gospel idea of saying we can get as vague as we can about the name Jesus, but not understand who we're trusting in. And he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, verse 33, signifying what death he should die. That being lifted up, obviously he wasn't going to be speared. He wasn't going to be poisoned. He wasn't going to be beheaded. He was going to be lifted up on a Roman cross. And that action, that event, would be used to draw all men to the point of decision. What will you do about Jesus Christ? Will you accept him as the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again? Or will you reject him and stay in the worldly wisdom of man? Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. You see this phrase here. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things. That's why I use that illustration of a computer search, because literally the Spirit has access to it all. He is God. Yea, the deep things of God. Then the, exp- the explanation goes on further. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? All a man can know is what he has access to. doesn't have the access in his nature to see the things of God. He can see things that God has done. He can see the eternal power and glory of God. But in order for him to come to the decision where he can put his faith in Christ, that has to first be revealed to him. And that's what you're doing when you're soul winning. When, you're, when, you're, when you are speaking the gospel message to somebody, who, and you hear this phrase, I've never heard that before. This is a part of God drawing that person to faith in him. They still have to make the decision, but you're being used by God to bring them to the point of, what are you going to do? You see how soul winning is very, very important? Somebody did this for you. And you may say, well, I got saved reading a tract. Somebody wrote the tract. (laughs) I got saved listening to a radio program. Somebody recorded that radio program. Man can't find it on his own, but it's been revealed through Jesus, uh, uh, from God through Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm trying to see where this verse was that, oh, I'm sorry, look at this, this phrase of verse 7. I forgot to highlight this. I mentioned it before. Which God ordained before the world unto our glory. This plan of salvation, it's been selected before the world was even formed. Jesus is always going to be the lamb slain. This would always be the, the, the way that a person is saved, but it was progressively revealed. Look at verse 12. Now we, those who have believed, and Paul speaking of himself here too, have received not the spirit of the world, you tie that back to what he said in verse 6, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are and this is a really important focus here, freely 
given to us of God. Now, the believers in Corinth, they were not getting that knowledge because they weren't obedient. When you're not obedient, you can only be disobedient. You can't be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, think about with kids. You either do, they either do the right thing and obey you or they disobey. I can't tell you how many times kids grow into adults thinking that they can half obey and disobey. How many times you, somebody gets caught doing something and they say, well, what I really meant was, well, no, what you really, however you want to finagle this, you ended up in disobedience. And you know, those kids grow up into adults and then they run into the law and the law has no space for that. The law says, no, you broke the law. You know, you get pulled over for speeding and the officer asks you, do you know how fast you were going? A lot of people say, well, it was only, or I forgot, or I, wasn't, I, I didn't know, or I have this to do, or I have that to do. It's that police officer's uh, duty to enforce the law. Now, if he chooses not to enforce the law, that, that's a choice that he can make. That's a, he's, he's, he's demonstrating grace, but the law must be fulfilled. The law has to be pushed. But he can obviously say to you, I'm going to write you a ticket. But I didn't mean to, but you did. Okay, so the, the believers in Corinth, they, were, they had put their trust in Jesus Christ, but they weren't experiencing growth that is available to them. And, and Paul's giving them this right before he says to them, and you're carnal. You're not doing these things because you're not obeying. It's available to them, though. And it's available freely. Verse 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. You can tie that back to verse 12 to verse 6. But which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We'll look at this last passage and then come back in a moment. But in, no, actually, we won't because we already, we already covered it to some extent. I've mentioned it. But John 16, 7 through 11, John chapter 16, 7 through 11 speaks about what the Holy Spirit does to the world today. And it's my understanding that when the rapture happens and the tribulation period begins, the church will be removed and that role of the Holy Spirit convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that won't be here anymore. Some people say, well, this is, you know, natural conscience, like, you know, that searing conviction of when you do wrong. I believe that is God working through the Holy Spirit to convict people of there's a consequence for this. You hear many atheists that have come to faith in Christ talk about how they were afraid of what would happen when they died. They didn't tell anybody that, but they're wondering, what if I died? <coughs> what is going to happen to me? That's not a natural part of man. That's God working on man. Verse 13 there, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So as you grow, you're going to be presented with truth. Jesus says, you do well, you don't commit adultery. But I say every man that looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery. You're now presented with an option. I'm either going to continue to justify myself because I'm not physically committing adultery, but I'm lusting in my heart. I'm not going to make any changes there. Well, you're not going to grow. You're going to hinder your growth. Instead, you should compare spiritual things with spiritual things. 
Jesus says this is a problem and I should do this. So the spiritual response would be to do what Jesus says. That's loving God. 1 John, really good book for you to grow. How can you say you love God but hate your brother? How can you say you love that which you have not seen and hate the thing you do see? That's a major problem. Spiritual with spiritual. You compare these things. The only reason why you can do that is because you've accepted the record of God which is in his son. Then there's the comparison, verse 14. But the natural man, the natural man being the unconverted man, (coughs) the person who is not saved, receiveth not the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And isn't this a very good description of how people look at, I'm going to say it the way they say it, easy believism? They call it foolishness. What, you mean you just have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins and you're saved? No way. There's got to be a change. He doesn't know this trick. (laughs) There is a change. You're born again. That's the change. Now, the way you demonstrate that to other people is by good works. But how many people, they poo-poo this idea of all you have to do is believe. There's no way. It has to be more. There's a guy right now who wrote a long article because Trent wrote a tweet. (laughs) It kind of blows my mind because here we are, little Bible line, 400 followers. We tweet the truth that repentance does not mean turn from sin. And this guy, he writes a whole article about how wrong that is and how we're cheap grace and all that. Then I go to his plan of salvation. I'm like, we ought to go to his plan of salvation. Nothing there about maintaining good works to be saved. He actually gives a clear gospel. But then he writes an article that if you're really saved, you'll do this and this and this. That's called backloading the gospel. That's making it free in the beginning, but then saying, oh, if you're really, really saved, you won't do this and this and this. Never say how much sin you have to stop and how much non-sin you have to do. Never defines it, but says, surely a real Christian won't live in sin. That's not comparing spiritual with spiritual. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And they can enter into spiritual discernment by believing what God says about his Son. They receive receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. The believer will not stand in any court of man and be judged on the worth of his eternal life. God has already judged him, and he is declared righteous. Why? Jesus died in his place. God's not the cool police officer that says, I'll give you a warning for your sin. No, God says, your sin must be paid. And Jesus steps in and pays that ticket for you. Isn't that good? We don't have this this God that just, he just miscarries justice. He demands it, and it was satisfied in the death of his son. Amen? And we now have Jesus, now and forever. That's what our sign says, the significance of it. New year, same Jesus, details inside. I did come up with that one on my own. And I'm hoping someone comes in and says, I want to talk about your sign. I'm like, great. Let me get Trent. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Although Trent would be ready. Last verse here, verse 16. For who 
hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. Now this is interesting. Instruct comes with the expectation of a teacher and a student. You go to my class next week and you take four weeks of class and you don't turn in any assignments. You don't even show up. You're not taking any tests or quizzes. I'm instructing. You're not receiving it. You're a bad student. Still a student, but not a good one. What is the encouragement there? We have the mind of Christ. We have it available. And then he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, for ye are yet carnal. So there's a chance for the believers in Corinth to get right and start growing. They have that knowledge available to them. It's not in self-help. You can close your Bibles. It's not in, I need more meditation. I need to eat better. And all these things might be beneficial, but the real truth, the real growth, is obedience to God's Word. And the only way you can do what God's Word says is you have to know what it says. I want to share with you how you can know that you have eternal life. This hand represents you, me, and everybody in the entire world. This block of sin represents sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, He loves us. He hates sin because it separates us from Him. In order to get to heaven, we have to be absolutely sinless, which is perfection. No sin ever committed, and we all fall short. That's why we're called sinners. That word means to miss the mark. The mark is perfection. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. This is the risk that many people willingly run. They say this is not that bad, or they say none of this even exists. They deny God. They profess themselves to be wise, and they worship the creation over the Creator. There's others that say, well, if I'm a good person, if I go to church, if I turn from my sin... If I start doing good things according to what I and the world think is good, then I can pay for my sin little by little. It'll have to be a lifetime of work, but I can do it. I can pay it off myself. The Bible says that we're not saved by any good works of ourselves. Salvation is a free gift received by faith. This represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. He is that free gift, amen? He went to the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood. And on the cross, he paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And by the way, all of your sin was yet to be done. And he paid for all of it. He cried out, it is finished. He gave up the ghost. He was buried. And he rose again three days later. And the Bible says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say whosoever believeth in him and continues in his good deeds shall not perish but have everlasting life. It says only those who believe. That Jesus, as the Son of God, paid for their sins on the cross of Calvary by shedding his blood, that he was buried and rose again. You believe on that, Jesus. You're eternally secured. And you ought to live a life of value for God. You ought to live a life of obedience. But the way you live your life does not determine this event. What determines this event? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we're working into this new year, I, I pray for all of those here tonight that we would be faithful which, with each day that we are given. 
I also pray, Lord, for those on the internet who may be watching us for the first time. I pray for any of those who may have put their trust in Jesus Christ tonight. Strengthen and encourage them. And finally, Lord, we pray for your soon return. Give us, as your children, the strength that we need to finish well and not become weary. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things.